Welcome to this edition of the IAICFITrainer.net podcast. Today, we're going to talk about something that some investigators might take for granted, their evidence collection tools, and why continued vigilance is critical to protecting the integrity of your samples that you collect at fire scenes. In mid-March 2012, Analytical Forensic Associates tested three samples from a fire scene. Two of the three tested positive for a medium aromatic product. The third sample tested negative for ignitable liquid residues. Laurel Mason, laboratory director, noticed that the negative and positive samples were in different types of can. The two samples that tested positive for a medium aromatic product were contained in a half-gallon gold line can that was provided by the investigating agency. The sample that was negative for ignitable liquid residue was contained in a one-gallon gray-lined can that had been supplied by the laboratory. Curious, Ms. Mason looked back through previous cases submitted by the same agency and found two other cases earlier that year where samples were submitted in half-gallon gold-lined cans. Ms. Mason contacted the agency and requested empty comparison cans that were half-gallon gold-lined. These empty cans tested positive for a medium aromatic product. In 2015, Ray Cook, a forensic chemist with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives Forensic Laboratory, noticed the same issue. A positive sample of a light to medium aromatic product, classified as an ignitable liquid, was obtained from an empty half-gallon gold-lined evidence collection can. The half-gallon cans in question were lined with a new FDA gold epoxy consisting of Valspar 6256054 epoxy coating, or possibly other trade name products. The issue with the gold line cans underscores the critical importance of sending a sample can from every batch of newly acquired evidence storage cans to the laboratory for analysis so that they can be confirmed as negative for ignitable liquid classified compounds. Failure to do this may jeopardize the results of testing on substances collected in the cans. An opposing attorney may argue that the can was not eliminated as a potential source of ignitable liquids found in the sample. This issue brings up a larger question of what fire investigators should be doing on a consistent basis to ensure the integrity of the samples they collect. Today, Laurel Mason, Laboratory Director for Analytical Forensic Associates, is with us on the podcast to discuss what steps need to be taken to ensure the integrity of samples you send for laboratory analysis. Laurel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So give us a little more detail about what happened with the gold epoxy-lined evidence cans. How was the issue discovered? We had um, a case in early January 2002. We had a one-half gallon, and they were gold-lined cans. In that case, there was only one sample submitted. They analyzed the, the evidence just like we would routinely and found a medium aromatic product. The second case was about 120 cases later, in the, also in 2002, about a month later. Um, additionally, this was only one sample submitted, and it also had a, a medium aromatic product. The third case was in late March, and this was about 200 cases later. So there was a good bit of time in between. In this case, there were three samples submitted, one regular one-gallon can, which was provided by our laboratory, and two one-half-gallon cans. 
both of the half-gallon cans contained the medium aromatic product. At that point, a flag just kind of started to rise because we see medium aromatic products from time to time, but not this frequently. I looked at the other two cases, and they were all from the same client. Looked at those two cases, realized that we're seeing it in the same type of sample container. And it was an unusual size because we don't see it very often. I contacted the client, requested the he send us some cans, and he overnighted them to us, asked him where he got it. He was an online supplier. We analyzed the cans and found a medium aromatic product in each one of them. At that point, we had to issue revisions to the reports, the first two reports. And then the third report, we just indicated that the medium aromatic product that was detected in the debris sample could not be eliminated from the can as the source. Hmm. So how did the ATF get involved? I believe ATF had somebody that had or, or had a, someone who had submitted containers that um, were the half-gallon size, and they may have seen the same thing. Yeah, his name uh, is Ray. It's K-U-K. I think it's Cook. Ray Cook. Uh-huh. Cook, okay. Uh-huh. So did you two work together, or had you found this independently? No, we discovered this back in March of, uh, well, actually, the first case was in January of 2012. So we knew about it about four years ago. And then I was contacted, I guess, uh, late last year that ATF had also seen this, too. Hmm. So what did you, you know, what should somebody do? I mean, as an investigator, uh, what should he or she do if they have gold epoxy-lined cans to package evidence? Throw them away. Don't use them, especially the one-half-gallon size. As a forensic laboratory, one of the things that, that we're hugely concerned about is the quality of the sample and the integrity of the sample. Um, as part of our quality control, we send to our clients cans, evidence cans, for collection of evidence, specifically because we know that those cans, when they leave here, are clean cans. Because we run every single day in our laboratory, we run what's called a system blank, and, and we actually run one of our cans um, through the analytical process. Every one of our cans have a lot number, so we can actually look and make sure three years down the road when we go to testify, here is the blank that we had on this lot number of can, and we can show that to the jury if need be to show that it is clean. Um, I, I think it's important if a laboratory doesn't receive cans that they know are legitimately clean, that they request immediately a comparison can. Um, or note in their report that this can was not supplied by the laboratory. So what's the recommendation from the IWI on evidence cans going forward as described in the technical bulletin? Um, that you should submit a comparison sample if you don't know, or a comparison can if you don't know the source of the can. Okay. If it's not a if it's not a can that was checked by the laboratory or supplied by the laboratory, you should always submit a comparison can. Okay. So let's widen out a little bit and talk about the overall issue of containers that investigators use to package evidence. 
Um, what should investigators be doing with these containers to ensure that they're not a source of contamination, whether it's a, a can, a bag, envelope, something else? Most laboratories that supply cans to their clients package them in boxes. And those cans are usually packaged, sealed, with the lid already on the on the can, usually four to the box or something. Um, and when the investigator receives that, they should leave them packaged in the box until the time comes that they want to use them. Um, make sure that they remain sealed, that they just don't open them up and throw them in the back of their truck. Um, that's the best way to make sure that you don't have any contamination contamination issues. Okay, so. Um, besides that, uh, you know, should they also be sending in a bag or an envelope for comparison as well, just like they did a can? Well, we don't very we don't recommend submitting samples in regular Ziploc bags or anything that is not specifically designed to maintain fire evidence. There are the K-pack bags, which are the nylon bags. Those bags are designed for fire debris samples. However, their usefulness is kind of questioned sometimes, too, because that the integrity of the sample can be compromised if there's a sharp object that's used, that is packaged in that, that K-Pack bag. It can easily rip. So then you have a problem with contamination from that aspect. Investigators should not be using zipper lock bags, regular zipper lock bags, or any other type of bag or collection device unless the laboratory runs a comparison. In fact, my recommendation to all my clients is if you want to put something in a Ziploc bag, it's probably going to be negative because it's going to be, you're going to lose your ignitable liquids because they're porous bags. Makes sense. So what are some of the other common errors? You know, we've worked with folks in the lab industry or the lab business for a while. And I hear a lot of different things, and, and some of them stay the same, and, and some of them are new, like the gold can issue. So um, what are some of the common errors that you're seeing out there where you'd like to see some change, uh, some things that would help improve the integrity of collected samples? They're, they're very simple errors, actually. Oftentimes we get sample containers in here where the uh, V-lock rim is not cleaned out. If the V-lock, if you go to put your evidence inside the can and some of the debris gets in the, the V-lock of the can and you go to put your lid on it, it's not going to seal properly. So simply just cleaning out the V-lock area from debris. Um, another problem that we see quite frequently is improperly packaged liquids. The one gallon and the one quart lined evidence containers are designed for solid debris. They're not designed for liquids. Um, unfortunately, during shipping, because there is the, uh, the vapor pressure of the liquid that may be contained within, if you put a uh, liquid inside one of these cans, the vapor pressure can cause the lid to rupture during shipment. The proper type of packaging for liquids, ignitable liquids for comparison or whatever, are small glass vials. You don't ever want to put it in a, a gallon or a quart can. Um, another important factor, and this is really becoming critical today, is to make sure that you have some kind of seal on your can that's a tamper evidence seal. 
whether it's regular evidence tape or some other type of tape, so that when the laboratory receives that evidence, they know that it has not been opened from the time that you place that tape on that lid. And that's becoming critical in a lot of um, cases, trial cases. Okay. What about cross-contamination? Cross-contamination can easily occur if you don't clean your tools between sampling. What we recommend is that if you're in an area where you're taking ignitable liquids, and you can obviously smell like gasoline, kerosene, diesel fuel, whatever, that you take your weakest sample first, and then you go to take your strongest sample. My recommendation is that you clean your tools in between sampling. And you can, that can be easily be done with any type of uh, good detergent that are on the market nowadays. Okay, so I didn't hear you mention headspace. People getting better at that? They are getting better at that. They're getting much better at that. Um, I, I think that that is quite obvious that, that we need to have that headspace in order to recover any of the volatile components. We very rarely see anybody pack a can all the way full and try to fit that lid on it. That's great to know. I know that probably has something to do with the training and education that you and, and others at the IAAI have been working on for years. I know that uh, 10 years ago when we were involved in producing things, uh, that was one of the main issues. You know, It was just how to use a can and, and how to get that evidence sealed up. Yeah, yes. So what other issues uh, would you like to cover that you would like to get as a message out to fire investigators related to the lab or to contamination or uh, preserving samples? I think it's important that, that you work closely, the investigators work closely with the laboratory and use their cans. I mean, we, we supply those cans for a reason. And that is so that we can have the confidence that when we send them to you, they're in good shape, good condition. They're clean. We have the data to show that. If we get something that, let's say, we have, like in this case, where we had a medium aromatic product, we had no record of any type of background on this can. And it was just happenstance that I thought, this is really getting kind of odd. This is three times in the last four months that we found a medium aromatic product and it's the same client. <laughs> and once we, you know, like I say, once we looked at the evidence containers, it was quite clear as to what was going on. Um, I think it's important to remember that nowadays in, the, in our litigious society that it is essential, essential that you tape seal those cans because it, it, courts are not allowing them to be introduced as evidence because okay. the, the chemist cannot testify as to the integrity of the sample. Yeah, it needs to be maintained a chain of custody. And Okay. Um, how about time? What do, you, what do you mean? Well, how often um, do you usually get your samples in a timely fashion? Does that affect what, what happens uh, to your testing? Oh, absolutely it does. Um, one of the things that, that we're seeing a lot more of now is the adjuster, the in, and it's usually the insurance adjuster, wants the, to hold on to the evidence. They don't want it analyzed right away. I guess they're going through their process of adjusting the claim, and 
six, eight, ten months goes by, and then they want to analyze the sample. Well, you know, these, these cans are not 100% leak-proof. <laughs> you know, it, it will evaporate to some degree. And not only that, the cans will start to oxidize on the outside, and you lose the integrity of the can that way. But what we're seeing is, is yeah, a lot of people are starting to hold on to the evidence and just wait and, and have it analyzed. We're seeing the same thing in vegetable oil and fat analysis. And with those types of samples, the longer it takes, the more degradation that goes on. And it's not just you're not losing volatile components, but you're losing the actual components that are the reactants in spontaneous heating cases. So in some cases, uh, somebody who might be holding on to evidence to, I, I don't know, I'm guessing to save to save time or money, uh, might be hurting their own case. They're absolutely hurting their own case. Okay. Where can fire investigators go to try to stay up to date on these kind of technical issues? They can call their laboratories and they can talk to their scientists and they can listen to the podcast. They can go for training and education at, at the international level as well as some of the state classes that the state chapters are putting on. I know next month we're having a state seminar and, and two of my scientists are presenting to the membership or to the attendees evidence collection and preservation. Okay. I really appreciate your time, Laurel. Thank you. We will uh, look forward to seeing you at ITC, I think, this spring? And Yeah, in May, March. Okay. April. I think it's May. (laughs) (laughs) We better fix that on the news. Yeah. All righty. Now for the IWI News, IWI 2016 ITC Orlando is almost here, so it's time to register and firm up your travel plans if you haven't already done so. This training conference is the biggest one in the U.S. for fire investigators and allied professionals. More than 80 hours of training are available in one place over five days from April 24th through the 29th. So this is a great opportunity to fulfill NFPA 1033's requirements to maintain an up-to-date basic knowledge beyond the high school level of the 1.3.7 topic list. If you're new to the profession, There is a full 40-hour basic fire investigation course offered as well. There will be plenty of networking opportunities. Plus, Orlando has great opportunities for recreation, sightseeing, and dining when the day's sessions are over. We're looking forward to seeing you at ITC from April 24th to the 29th. For more information, you can go to iaaiitc.com. That concludes this podcast. Stay safe. We'll see you next time on cfitrainer.net. For the IAAI and cfitrainer.net, I'm Rod Ammon.